welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews. You can read anytime you want. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to check out the other podcast that I do that is similar to this one, except it covers more recent movies, and you can find the link to that at my website. It's called the Quipster Film Review Podcast. Check that out at quipster.net. Today I'm going to be getting into the first part of this three-part series, looking at fascist aliens in the United States, keeping up with the alien motif that I've been going through for the last few episodes. These are aliens that have infiltrated Earth, including the United States, and are controlling our thoughts and minds in very malicious ways. The first movie I'm going to be talking about today, well, it's actually two movies, or it's actually not a movie, I guess, depending on how you qualify it. I kind of qualify these as movies. They just happen to be movies that are made for television, and they appear in parts. I'm talking about miniseries, made-for-TV miniseries that came out in the 1980s, and the one I'm going to be talking about today is uh, one of the most popular ones to come out in the 1980s. From 1983, the original miniseries called V. Now, V is not rated. It did not come out in theaters in the United States. It did get some overseas play in theaters, but I would definitely rate it about PG-13 for violence, disturbing images, and some subject matter. The runtime, if you include both parts, is 3 hours and 17 minutes. Mark Singer, Jane Badler, Faye Grant, Michael Durrell, David Packer, Peter Nelson, Neva Patterson, Tommy Peterson, Blair Tefkin, Michael Wright, Evan C. Kim, Richard Hurd, Bonnie Bartlett, Leonardo Cimino, Richard Lawson, George Morfigan, and Robert England. Robert England before he became Freddy Krueger in Nightmare on Elm Street the following year. They're all in this film. It's a big ensemble cast. Kenneth Johnson is the director and the screenwriter and the producer and the creator of V. Now, V is a miniseries that aired on NBC. It was in two parts. It came out, the first part came out on May 1st, and the second part on May 2nd of 1983. And this was during the May Sweeps period, very big for NBC at that time. It was written and directed and produced, as I mentioned, by Kenneth Johnson. Johnson came to prominence on television as the producer of pretty big hit TV shows like The Six Million Dollar Man. He also was the creator and producer for TV series like The Bionic Woman, the spinoff from The Six Million Dollar Man, as well as The Incredible Hulk, the one with Bill Bixby and Lou Ferrigno. In 1982, Johnson developed this idea for a feature film. He had read Sinclair Lewis's 1935 novel called It Can't Happen Here, very much inspired by that. That book depicts this demagogue who gets elected president of the United States through, and this sounds familiar to a lot of people who are listening today, I suppose, stirring up fear among the American people while promising great economic and social change, while also returning the country toward patriotism and so-called traditional values. This newly elected president clamps down on all forms of dissent. He goes after his enemies with vengeance. He reorganizes power structures within the government until he imposes, finally, totalitarian rule. And despite their country radically changing, many Americans become convinced that the measures that are taken by this demagogue are beneficial and necessary to restore the country's greatness again. 
An underground movement develops to take down this president and his fascistic regime. And I won't go into spoilers as to what happens after that for those people who might be interested in reading It Can't Happen Here. Now, inspired by the Sinclair Lewis novel, Johnson contemplated what might happen if fascism did take hold in a modern America. How would we individually react with our freedoms taken away if we were occupied by a Nazi-like force who upended our comfortable existence? Johnson observed that America in the early 1980s had grown very complacent, maybe even ignorant about these kinds of things. He wanted to create something that would remind Americans that it could happen if we ignore all of the signs. He saw seeds of inherent fascism within American society that began to bear fruit in those times in such things as the radical right-wing groups forming militias or in vigilante groups that started to patrol the streets. Johnson spent a year researching what life was like for ordinary people who were under Nazi occupation at that time. He studied all forms of media, like Bertolt Brecht's play, Fear and Misery of the Third Reich. He read William L. Shirer's The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. He read The Diary of Van Frank. He watched the 1974 Louis Malle film called La Combe Lucienne. The 1969 documentary The Sorrow and the Pity. The 1974 Claude Lelouch film called The Good and the Bad, and he also used the 1956 Alan René documentary short called Night and Fog, as well as the 1935 German propaganda film Triumph of the Will for visual ideas of what he wanted to represent on the screen. And once he developed the story outline, Johnson wrote a spec script, and he titled it Storm Warnings. Johnson's story depicted a modern-day America crippled by fast-moving fascism when this grassroots, hard right-wing political party rises and it takes hold of the government to impose totalitarian rule. And this movie would be a hypothetical war drama paralleling events that occurred in the 1930s in Germany and Italy. And the story would explore the roots of how America might react to living in this police state controlled by a powerful authoritarian regime. Johnson felt that audiences should see in America without all of these liberties that we've taken for granted. They've been taken away. And he wanted to encourage us as Americans to not be complacent and to stand up against the potential for tyranny, especially from within. Johnson happened to be eating dinner one night with his friend, NBC president, Brandon Tartikoff. Tartikoff was interested in what Johnson was working on, so he discussed this idea he had for storm warnings. And Tartikoff, whose network happened to be trailing quite significantly in the ratings, and was looking for a major event to draw in viewers to his network, he urged Johnson to do it for NBC as a big TV miniseries instead of making a feature film. Warner Brothers, who Johnson was collaborating with during this period, they had nothing else going on TV, and they could also use the inroads for more television productions. So Johnson mulled over this idea, and he concluded that a miniseries was probably the best way to explore all of these stories of life under occupation with the richest detail possible. However, as they continued their negotiations, Tartikoff started to grow skeptical that Americans would understand a homegrown fascism instead of an invading army. You know, maybe it should be Russia or China who came in and occupied the U.S. Johnson thought that that was an implausible idea, that Russia or China or some other world power could come in and sustain a prolonged occupation of the United States. We were a big country. We were insulated geographically. 
It just didn't seem plausible, although if you happen to know your 1980s miniseries, you know that ABC took a chance on that very premise in 1987 with their miniseries called America. That's America with a K. Now, while brainstorming ideas with Tartikoff and other NBC executives, someone, and Johnson thinks likely it was Brandon Tartikoff's then-assistant, Jeff Sagansky, who would go on to become the president of CBS and co-president of Sony Pictures and and other big things in the movie and TV industry. Somebody, though, suggested the occupying regime could be an advanced race from outer space. Johnson initially scoffed at this notion. He thought it was kind of ridiculous. And after three major science fiction-based shows, he was actively avoiding the genre to avoid getting pigeonholed into just being a creator of that. However, the more that he began to think about that idea the more that he considered it something that could work and work brilliantly if it was done right. And the benefit was that science fiction happened to be a very hot topic at the time. After Star Wars and Close Encounters and E.T., all of these things could really attract younger viewers and it would be great eye candy to draw in television audiences. So reimagining the foundational plot of Storm Warnings, Johnson spent about two and a half weeks writing a new script in which the fascist occupants are extraterrestrial in origin. And he was going to call this V. And that title came to Johnson observing graffiti on the wall while he was in a public restroom. And he was thinking it reminded him of graffiti that he saw while he was doing research of pictures in London during World War II, where the letter V was the most common thing that he could see on that graffiti. The V for victory that was promoted heavily by Winston Churchill. Johnson surmised that the science fiction action genre would especially capture teenage viewers who were unfamiliar completely with World War II. To avoid limiting its appeal, Johnson did not refer to V as a science fiction project when he was developing it, but much more of a social-political action-adventure feature. Johnson chose to represent the alien force as having human appearance, but they were reptilian underneath and that would be a metaphor for the Nazis. They would not be showing their real faces, at least until it was too late for us to do anything about it. Opportunists would be characters collaborating with the fascist regime, while there were others who were too scared or oblivious to act around them, and that would allow the fascist force to take real root into the country and the world at large. Johnson emphasized the typical person's perspective. He didn't want to focus on world leaders or generals. In times like these, Johnson wanted to concentrate on the three kinds of ordinary people, the self-serving people who would become collaborators with this fascist regime, those who feel safe because they weren't really the targets, and those who actively decided to resist what they know to be a moral wrong. The emphasis would not be about the visitors from space, but about how fascism changes everyday people within human society. Some would become heroes, others accomplices, and some would be completely disaffected. People react differently when they're confronted with moral dilemmas. Some rise to the occasion, some decide to take advantage of it, and other outcomes would be met with tragedy. NBC fast-tracked V. They gave Johnson only 20 days rather than the customary three or four months of preparation time. So Johnson immediately got to it. He pulled together his incredible Hulk crew because they already had a shorthand. They knew how to collaborate very quickly. Many decisions had to be made on the fly, and they started shooting scenes before casting had even completed. They shifted sequences once new actors came on board. In the completed story... The people of Earth are visited and they're befriended by this human-like race from outer space who are inhabiting these massive spacecrafts, 50 of them measuring about 3 miles in diameter, and they're hovering over cities all over the world. 
These newcomers speak Earth's languages fluently, although they have distinct electronic-sounding voices and are sensitive to light so that they have to wear, frequently, sunglasses. They're called the visitors by the people of Earth, and they've come to our planet for resources that we can manufacture for their people to survive in exchange for the vast knowledge of their technology and their medicine. They become celebrities, welcomed with open arms by humans worldwide. Manufacturing ramps up while the visitors take over media outlets. They start shaping public opinion for their cause against the world's scientists and any others who might figure out how to stop their domination. They register these scientists to track their whereabouts, and then they start to impose their influence all over the world. Revealed within this tale is that the visitors are this race of carnivorous reptilians donning elaborate human disguises, and their intent is to suck the earth completely dry of its water and to harvest humans for slave labor and for food. Now, Johnson chose water here because that's a life-sustaining resource that we often take for granted as always being there in abundance. Something, though, that if we lost, we definitely would cease to exist. The story emphasizes taking a look at the goodness that we all have and to appreciate that goodness as something that is worth fighting and dying to preserve. A lot of the action that we see takes place in this town in California, specifically Monrovia. The presumption is that what happens here is similarly, perhaps, happening in other places in the world where the visitors are also commanding. The resistance is forming among those citizens who refuse to sit idly by and to see their livelihood crumble. Meanwhile, others seize the visitors and their power as opportunism. So not all humans are really going to be acting on the side of good, and not all visitors are on the side of bad. There's this secret organization called the Fifth Column. They represent the secret faction of good visitors who want to end their brethren's oppressive control. Now, unlike most big television series, V lacked famous actors to bring in viewers, so they really had to sell this concept to make people want to tune in even when they didn't have actors that were going to draw in people naturally. Mark Singer, you know, he comes close here to kind of a, a star. He joined the production three days before filming on the strength of his performance in The Beastmaster, and also Kenneth Johnson happened to like his role as Petruchio in the stage performance of Shakespeare's Taming of the Shrew that he had seen in the 70s, so he was very familiar with Singer's talent. Singer took the role of this TV news cameraman named Mike Donovan because he liked the physicality that was afforded to the role, and also that his character was flawed and complex. He was not a stock action hero. Speaking of heroes, Faye Grant, who happened to have come from the uh, television show called The Greatest American Hero... She also happened to have starred in Kenneth Johnson's 1981 TV movie called Senior Trip. She's here playing a biochemist and a medical student named Juliet Parrish, who finds herself thrust into this rebellion as the leader of a team of gorillas. Meanwhile, Miss New Hampshire 1973, Jane Badler, she was cast three weeks after shooting had already begun. She plays Diana, one of the alluring commanders of a sort of the visitors. Alluring is what Johnson wanted for that role, and when he took one look at Badler, he had been captivated immediately by her eyes. There's also the strong implication that Diana happens to be bisexual, and that's one of many elements of V that tend to push the boundaries for TV fare of its era. There are over 60 speaking parts in the cast. This is a sprawling undertaking. Johnson had read Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace before he read It Can't Happen Here, and he drew a lot of inspiration from how Tolstoy introduced many disparate characters who would end up converging throughout the course of the story over time. Having recently completed the script for a proposed miniseries of Walter Scott's epic called Ivanhoe, Johnson had an iambic meter on his mind as he wrote, 
which he also applied to the dialogue of V, interestingly, Kenneth Johnson named the two main protagonists that I just talked about, Mike and Juliet, after two of his children. This naming is very similar to when he had changed the name of Bruce Banner to David after his eldest son for The Incredible Hulk. Mike, the cameraman, happens to be sneaking around on the visitor's ship, and he reveals that these visitors are not at all what they appear to be during one key sequence. Now, this series explores how different generations react based on their personal experience. For instance, we get one family, the Bernsteins. We have the elderly grandfather, Abraham. He's an Auschwitz survivor whose wife died in the gas chambers there. He sees the telltale signs of the visitors' rhetoric and their actions and is very alarmed by what they're doing. Meanwhile, the socially awkward teenager, his grandson, Daniel, has no experience with fascism. He finds the youth movement of supporters as a way to feel like he belongs to a cause, one that offers him rewards and an increased power for loyalty. Meanwhile, Daniel's father and mother are somewhere in between them. They think that the evil intent of the visitors or the changes in their child's behavior is going to pass in time until it becomes too obvious to give them the benefit of the doubt. But by that point, it becomes almost too late to do much about it. It is Abraham that defiles one of the visitor propaganda posters by spray-painting the letter V over it for victory, and that becomes the calling card for the rebellion. The Nazi parallels here are evident. Events in the town echo what happened in Warsaw and the Jewish ghetto in the late 1930s. In this parallel, the scientists replace the Jews, and the Visitor's Friends Youth Organization resembles the Hitler Youth Movement of the time. Scientists, instead of Jews here, are scapegoated or ridiculed or targeted or rounded up, and in some cases, they're exterminated. Johnson gave the visitors aspects that subconsciously remind viewers of Nazis. Their guns are kind of like modified Lugers. Their insignia resembles very distinctly the swastika. There are also familiar propaganda posters, uniforms, jackboots. The underground rebellion, meanwhile, protects the targeted scientists from capture and to fight for their freedom. There's a character here named Jenny Sullivan, kind of a news reporter cohort of Mike's. She echoes the German filmmaker and Nazi sympathizer Lenny Riefenstahl, who produced fascist propaganda for the Third Reich. There's the beautiful but deadly Diana, who is kind of akin to Joseph Mengele, an ambitious scientist who performs cruel experiments. The Juliet Parrish character is modeled after this resistance fighter named Andreas Dijon. Richard Hurd is the supreme commander who rises to prominence with these promises of greatness if he becomes our leader, this authoritarian who, like many other authoritarians, historically does all of this stuff to get the populace to hand over more power. Eleanor, this rich socialite, represents the Vichy French, willing to work with the insurgent power players for wealth and perks by selling out her own human race. Now, if you watch this on DVD or Blu-ray, you'll notice that this is kind of a widescreen presentation. Now, Warner Brothers often released notable films into theaters in international markets. So Johnson asked his cinematographer, John McPherson, to shoot in an open mat format to assure a 185 to 1 aspect ratio for theatrical showings while also framing the vital content for 4x3 TV screens. And that's why if you watch this on home video, you may see this in the widescreen format. You're actually seeing all the content, actually more content than what people saw on TV in 1983. 
Matthew J. Yurikich, the Oscar-winning visual effects artist for Logan's Run. He also was a nominee for Close Encounters of the Third Kind. He does the matte paintings for V, which included the motherships. The motherships were not big models. They actually were painted in. They didn't have the money for big spaceship models, or at least not very many. Gregory Jine, he's also an Academy Award nominee for Close Encounters, and he got a nomination for 1941. He did the miniature work that exists in this film. The budget of V ran $13 million, and that made it the most expensive programming ever made for television on a per-hour basis to that time. That's a little over $3 million per hour. The special effects work specifically caused these significant budget overages, but they do rank among the best for a television offering up to that point. The mothership itself, the interiors, set up two sound stages at the Burbank studio. Joe Harnell, he does the music score here, evoking a lot of classical music themes. He borrows here from Wagner, like Ride of the Valkyries specifically, Gustav Holst, the the planets, specifically Mars, the bringer of war. You can find elements of that here. Beethoven's Fifth Symphony is very key here. In fact, if you take the first notes, dot, 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 uh, it's kind of like dot, 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 dash, which is Morse code for the letter V. A few cues also borrow. If you're a big fan of Hitchcock, you'll recognize a lot of the musical cues from Bernard Herrmann's score for North by Northwest to kind of give that vibe of secret things going on under the scenes. Uh, For a scene where a high school marching band plays a song for the visitors, Johnson's secretary suggested that this marching band would play John Williams' theme to Star Wars for the visitors instead of the intended Sousa march he had in mind. He thought that was a good choice, so he secured the rights. Johnson here, he develops a lot of very good character arcs for this film. He keeps the action propulsive and very weighty. And despite a lot of shocking violence in this film, some cannibalism especially, that was inspired by Damon Knight's short story called To Serve Man. If you've seen uh, the old Twilight Zone, that was uh, one of the more famous of the episodes. Seemingly benevolent aliens come to Earth to cure our ills, but they're actually harvesting humans for food. We also see interspecies sex experiments here. Johnson had no problems, despite all of this stuff in this film, with the censors, interestingly enough. He claims that NBC execs loved the subplot, the most disturbing of them, involving the impregnation of Robin Maxwell. Robin has a crush on a visitor named Brian, and Diana starts to manipulate that into a breeding session just to see what would happen. Dominique Dunn, the actress, she had initially been cast as Robin, but... She was tragically murdered by her ex-boyfriend four weeks into the production while she was rehearsing lines with her good friend and co-star David Packer, who plays Daniel in this film. They recast the part with Blair Tefkin, and they had to reshoot three weeks worth of scenes containing Robin, tragically. For the guinea pig eating sequence, one of the most famous things in this film is actually one thing that has always stuck with me after watching this film when I was 12 years old. I've never forgotten that sequence. They used a false throat, they put it on Jane Badler, and they had air sacs to inflate and deflate to give the appearance of her actually swallowing down into her belly the skinny pig to simulate swallowing it whole. A very clever scene in many respects. I think if you watch V today, you will find that it serves more like a pilot to a potential TV series than it is a fully contained story that really did disappoint a lot of people at the time that there's no closure to some of the story threads at the end of this film. There are several plot developments here that don't close out, and some that only seem to be beginning. This definitely had continuation in mind. 
the first night of V actually ran 12 minutes longer. Johnson just could not find any more sequences that he could cut without weakening the story. He asked Tartikoff to take a look, and Tartikoff said he couldn't cut anything either, so he decided to tell the NBC affiliates that the showing was going to run well into their 11 p.m. news slot and to prepare accordingly, and he got away with it. This was kind of unprecedented at the time. Afterward, NBC asked Johnson to develop a five-year plan for V stories. They were thinking about making it a TV series if this miniseries proved successful, and that was pretty much why it was open-ended. The marketing campaign for this film was top-notch. There were posters placed in subway stations and at bus stops and billboards, towered above cities. It looked like old Nazi propaganda advertisements that went up in urban areas weeks before the release date, announcing such things as, uh, the visitors are our friends and friendship is universal. A week later, they would pay young people to go out and deface those posters and spray paint, marking them with a large red V over each poster and over the billboard. And then one week before airing, they placed banners on each of these ads that people had seen, announcing that the battle begins on NBC on May 1st to whet their appetite. Countdowns also began to announce how many days until the visitors' arrival to get everybody anticipating this miniseries. V was a huge hit in the United States. It was number two in the weekly Nielsen ratings. It had a 40 share. That meant about 55 million viewers in the U.S., a major success by all accounts. However, despite all of these huge ratings and that open-ended ending, NBC opted against making V a TV series immediately for the 1983-84 to season because it was just a very expensive idea to produce. Instead, NBC followed with another miniseries a year later called V the Final Battle, and then a weekly series after that proved to be very successful for the 1984-85 to season. V became an international phenomenon beyond the United States. In England, the following year, in 1984, the ITV network wanted good counter-programming to the BBC's coverage of the Olympics, so they bought airing rights for both TV miniseries of V. They won the ratings for the five consecutive daily showings against the Olympics. They pulled in about 10 million viewers, and this was done at a, in the middle of the night, really, where there shouldn't be a lot of viewers. Ironically, the two countries where the ratings were the highest in the world were Japan and Germany, both countries that inspired the World War II subtext of the series. Reportedly, state-run TV in South Africa during apartheid, they bought the rights to air V for their populace to show that black people and white people could happily work together. The day after it aired, large red V symbols were reportedly found spray-painted on walls in Soweto and surrounding cities. Now, although it's inspired and earnest, there is kind of a hokiness to the story within V. There's some clumsily handled action. This really was rushed, the production, and they didn't have the technology or the budget to be able to do all the things that Johnson wanted to do. So there are some cheesy effects. There's some hammy acting here. Soap opera aspects do enter the scene from time to time. You know, this is not top-notch science fiction as big properties go, but there is something still inherently groundbreaking and interesting and thought-provoking about V that will please seemingly every audience. Even people who are tuning in for comedy or romance, they get some of that here. So V has a broad appeal, which is what Johnson really had in mind. And there is a lot of subtext underneath that I think a lot of science fiction fans tend to appreciate among the best of the genre. Johnson has stated that V is actually more relevant today than it was back in 1983. He points to the complacency in America towards the rhetoric 
employed by Donald Trump and his entourage. Not to get too political here, but it definitely does have a lot of echoes of what's going on in the country today. So definitely, if you haven't watched it in a while, watch it today, and you will probably see it in a whole new and interesting light than when you had seen it 10 or 20 or 30 or 35 plus years ago. So I definitely recommend checking out V, and I will give it for what it is, a TV miniseries, three and a half stars out of four. This is a good miniseries and a very groundbreaking one in terms of science fiction and influenced a great many films. I would say especially if you're a fan of Independence Day, you will see a lot of things that were borrowed very heavily for that film. I actually hold V in higher regard, even though special effects and the star power in Independence Day cannot be touched by V. But still, V, as quaint as it is by today's standards, holds up really well as an entertainment for many reasons. And that's why I give it three and a half stars out of four. Now, for next week, I'm going to continue on with the very next part of this miniseries. In 1984, the three-part miniseries, they extended it an extra night. V, the final battle from 1984 for next week's episode. So for this week, you had two movies to watch. Next week, you basically have three movies to watch, maybe four and a half hours of material. So I do encourage you to check that out for the next review. If you haven't seen it or if you haven't seen it for a long time, and you'll be able to keep up as I deliver these reviews. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this review. If you have your own thoughts on V, obviously, if you grew up in the 1980s, this was kind of a big event miniseries for people who were my age, 12 years old, or somewhere around there at the time. I do encourage you to reach out to me. You can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Links to my Twitter feed, Facebook page, Instagram. Any of those are adequate to get in touch with me. And until next time, thank you so much for joining me around the world in 50 giant motherships in 80s movies. (laughs) 